Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 22, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My favorite, too long of an Earl Earl, PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. There must be some kind of strategic advantage for having a really, really long .com appendage there, but I, I can't think of the strategic advantage right now. But my name is Rick. I'm author of the just-released book, Spiritual Grit, and a couple years ago, The Jesus-Centered Life, and editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible. And today, we welcome back my friend Carl Medeiros, who's missionary to the Middle East. And what I like to—when I, when I tell people about Carl, I like to describe him as a real-life Indiana Jones without the fedora and without the bullwhip. Although, if we asked him right now, he might— somewhere in a closet, have a bullwhip, but we'll, we'll find that out in just a second. But he's the author of the best-selling book, Muslims, Christians, and Jesus. It's kind of a, the book to read if you're interested in how what Muslims think about Jesus and what it means to be a follower of Jesus, engaging Muslims. Muslims, Christians, and Jesus is that book. He's also written a number of other, uh, up what I would call upending books only Carl could write kind of books. Another one's called Speaking of Jesus, and we actually here at Group did the student edition of Speaking of Jesus. We we took his book and we turned it into a devotional book. We took all the, the great little bits out of there and isolated them into devotions and then created a, a whole book out of it for students, but it's actually, uh, I mean, it's too bad we had to name it uh, like a student edition because it's a devotional for anyone. It, it really is powerful. So that's called Speaking of Jesus, Student Edition, and it comes right out of his main books, Speaking of Jesus. And in just the last month or so, he published his latest book called 42 Seconds, and I'll, I'll let Carl describe to you what the title means. But he's also the catalyst behind the Simply Jesus Gathering, which um, you've heard me talk about on this podcast often. It's happening just a few hours from where I'm recording this right now, high in the mountains of Colorado, at the end of July, July 26th through 29th. So if you love Jesus and you want to connect with other people whose central thing in life is that they love Jesus, and you want to listen to great speakers and have great conversation, I'll be there. Carl will be there. You can actually decide whether or not he looks like Indiana Jones if you go, and we'll have a link to all of these things on our podcast site. So that, that wow, that's an incredible on-ramp introduction, I think, Carl, to you. So, Carl, maybe you could give us a, like a, a little thumbnail of your background, what you're up to now, and what 42 seconds means, actually. Wow. I'm impressed with myself. If all of that were true, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> I, am a write, I am a writer, so I, I just yeah. make stuff up. So <laughs> I always sound so much better in introductions than I do in real life, but, but that's okay. But thanks, thanks Rick. Um, yeah, and I don't think I have a bull whip, but I've been told I'm full of bull something else that oh, yeah, sounds I, like whip. I, yeah. I get what you're doing there. Yeah, I, I do have that same amount of letters and all that. But anyway, yeah, I mean, what do I do? I don't really know what I do. I um, I do a lot, a lot of stuff. Right now I'm sitting in my F-150 Ford pickup truck on top of a hill looking down at some land that uh, I own that we've been fixing up, and so I'm a little bit of a part-time developer, entrepreneur, uh, buy and sell kind of guy, and that's been fun. Uh, as you said, I don't ever use the word missionary, but thanks for throwing that in there, Rick. Um, I've been a guy living in another country that loves Jesus, so I, I suppose Christians call that a missionary, but you know, uh, I haven't thought of that for a long time. But yes, we've lived in Beirut, Lebanon for a long time. Our oldest daughter still lives in Beirut. Um, lived in Dubai the last few years with my wife, Chris. And uh, wherever we are, we try to sort of follow the great commandment and love God and love people, and you know, that goes more or less well, depending on the day. Um, and I write some books, although I don't like writing. I 
hope I never have to write another book. Rick, you're actually a good writer. I actually find writing horribly tedious, painful. Like I want to kill myself when I have so, to write a book. So I have to I have to break in here because one of the one of the things I just really really enjoy about Carl is about every year he tells me, "Well, that was the last book I'll ever write for sure." <laughs> Absolutely not. Will I ever write another book? And then That's I true. talked to him about uh, six months later. And he, oh, I'm working on a book right now. And so, <laughs> what that does That's is it's true. it's like it's like the author who cried wolf. You know, yeah. you just don't believe it him is. anymore that he's not going to write any more books. So it's true. I I, I confess, that. but I think 42 seconds really is my last one. For, for real, Rick. Seriously, for real. Like if I write another after this, please come over and punch me in the face. Okay. Oh well, I I could go to jail for that, but okay, I'll I'll do that. So shove me, shove me hard. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. And I was in a weak moment two years ago when I said yes and to Nav Press, and they got me to write this book. And and in the end, I, actually, you know, it's funny. I like having written the book, but I don't like writing a book. It's the ing part. Of that. Well, I think I think the premise of this one is is fascinating. That that so so you correct me if I'm wrong here, but the the premise is really that you had somebody try to figure out how long Jesus's interactions were on average and he and he figured out that the average is about 42 seconds and what's amazing about that is that Jesus was able to impact people permanently and change their their trajectory forever in just 42 seconds and that's a premise that a little bit of time can mean a lot if you're engaging that's people it. about Jesus that yep. did I get that right you did you did well that that's it I mean I I had the thought Maybe four, four or five years ago, thinking, you know, I wonder, I wonder how long Jesus's conversations were because he had a lot of short ones. I mean, the longer ones were actually with Nicodemus and the woman at the well, and, and they were they were very long. So not not the teaching parts like the Sermon on the Mount, but the conversations. And it's true, I actually had three people, and then also myself. So four of us read through them in a conversational tone of voice and tried to figure out what was the average length, and it comes up to forty-two seconds. So. Then thinking about how many short conversations do we have in a day, and that's a lot. And actually, sociologists say that Americans' average length of their conversation is definitely less than one minute. So that includes your, you know, your Starbucks. You know, hey, how you doing? Fine. How are you? Fine. What, what can I get you? Have a grande, you know, double pump hazelnut latte. Great. Thanks. Have a good day. You too. I mean, that's a twenty-second wow. conversation. It's not that, a very good conversation. Yeah, that's also that's also a bad date night. Actually, you know. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So we actually have lots. So that, that's what the book's about: is you know how can we make those conversations maybe a little bit more meaningful? It's 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 really a low bar book. It's it's re- it's easy to read. It's relatively simple. It's about being nice to your neighbors and saying hi to people. And and, uh, and turns out it actually might be the best thing best thing that I've written, just because uh, I think people, all of us, need that. We need to be encouraged and reminded to say hello to the waitress and actually look at her and smile when we're eating out, you know, changing the world with a, with a colleague. We don't forget the, don't forget the waitress, which yeah. is really the first chapter. That's <laughs> so good. Go. That's good. So the two things that pop into my head here, one is that um, Carl, I, I introduced him as you know, he's a missionary to the Middle East, and that's a lot of what he's done in the, you know, the last three decades of his life. And relative to that, he is actually calling from some remote place in the Colorado mountains, but it doesn't it sound like we're we're talking to him in Beirut right now? Yeah, we could say that. We Let's could say, say that you're in Beirut, Beirut right now, and it would explain yeah. why you're you're talking yeah. as if you're standing on the surface of the moon right now. But so so bear with us. But you know, when you're in remote Colorado, th- let's say the the reception is sketchy. So yes. So That's so bear with us with that and. What's what's fascinating about this forty-two seconds thing is that you'll find that everything that Carl ever has written or talked about or uh, gathers people for is centrally always about Jesus, um, not about Christian principles, not about Christianity, uh, but about Jesus. And I think that's the thing that really ties us together. We are both. I like to describe myself as ruined by and ruined for Jesus, and I would describe Carl the same way. And He's an inspiration to me, um, and he is an upending person. Like in a, he, he says the most casually upending things of anyone I've ever met. So he will be speaking at Simply Jesus, as he always does, and what he does at that gathering is always a highlight for me. So I really encourage you to take a risk 
you know, uh, go go do an adventure. We had a, a couple of uh, regular listeners to the podcast last year in our pigs group that um, heard about Simply Jesus Gathering, and they had never traveled out of their state before. And they decided to take a, a major adventure and drive across multiple states, I think from Illinois, to come to this gathering with people they'd never met before, and they had a fantastic time at this gathering. And there's lots of surprises awesome. and lots of great stuff that happens there. So, so oh, thanks. So today, Carl and I are going to focus on something that I can't wait to dig into. Um, uh, this is one of those uh, mud puddle episodes where Jesus says something that typically we have just jumped over because we don't slow down enough to realize what did he say and what does that even mean? There's so many things Jesus said or did that we just jump over because we our brains can't comprehend it. So we, we kind of say something inside like, well, that's Jesus for you, and we blow past it. So Carl and I are going to camp on a little something that Jesus said in John chapter 10. It happens right after this really contentious encounter Jesus has with the Pharisees. He has just healed a man born blind. The man didn't even ask for Jesus to heal him, by the way. Jesus just sees him by the side of the road and calls him over and spits in the dirt, smears spit mud on his eyes, and tells him to go outside of town and wash in the Pool of Siloam, and he'll see again. Well, he does all this crazy stuff, and it happens to be on the Sabbath, and this man who was born blind, the whole town knows him. The, 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 the surrounding area, in the surrounding area, they all know him. All of a sudden, this guy can see. He goes to the temple to report to the religious leaders that he can now see he was healed, and they don't believe him. They, they, think, he's a, they think he's a poser. He th- they think he's making it up. And they're also really, really irritated that Jesus did this on the, on the Sabbath. So first, they don't think it even happened. But then when they start to acknowledge it happened, they, they're really mad that it happened on the Sabbath. So this is the context in John 9 and 10, where Jesus then launches into, while he's surrounded by these, uh, these contentious Pharisees who are irritated with him, uh, he's, he's right in that moment, he starts talking about sheep and shepherd. Uh, he, he, he contrasts what a good shepherd is from what a bad shepherd is, and he's very particularly doing this because the Pharisees are standing there listening. So he ends his sort of uh, teaching-slash-diatribe about good shepherds and bad shepherds by saying this, and here's where Carl and I are going to camp. He said this is in verse 14, and we're going to read through verse 16. So this is John 10, 14 through 16 that we're going to camp on, so if you're not driving a car right now, you might want to flip over to there and stare at this. So here's what he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep, and they know me, just as my Father knows me, and I know the Father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. And here's here's where we're really going to focus. I have other sheep, too, that are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock with one shepherd. Now my bet is that that little piece there, verse 16, I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold, is how it starts. I bet you have never heard anyone in a church talk about that. And we, we, a lot of us listening to this right now might, might think, I didn't even know that was in the Bible. What, what does that mean anyway? Well, what we're going to do is slow down and pay some ridiculous attention to every little thing he says in verse 16 here. We're going to pick it apart and camp on it, and Carl is the perfect person to have this conversation with. I've been waiting to have this conversation with Carl about this, because I think this is right in his, the sweet spot of his life. So let's, let's launch into this. The first thing he says is, I have other sheep, too, that are not in this sheepfold. So it's, I think it's interesting to consider, what the heck does Jesus mean by this sheepfold? What are all of the possible meanings here? So, Carl, when when you hear that, what what comes to mind? I think uh, I think I have to go now. <laughs> <laughs> That's what comes to mind first. But then the second thought is, okay, I could stay for a little bit and talk about it. But uh, yeah, that's I love it, Rick, that you're thinking of that. I think we first discussed this topic a few months ago. We were talking about like when this make a fun podcast, and and it's true. I mean, it's. Uh, 
you know, Jesus actually says so many things like that we miss. Uh, for instance, he says in one place in Mark, he says, if you're not with me, you're against me, which is what I've always heard, you know, people that are with him, you know, we're, we're the good guys, and if you're not with him, then you're against him, and you're, you know, you're on the wrong side of the fence, you're going to hell, you're a bad guy, whatever, you know, you're a sinner, you're lost. But then in another book, another chapter, another place, he actually says the exact opposite. If you're not against me, you're with me. Those are two very different things. One, if you're not with me, you're against me. We get that. But then he turns and says, if you're not against me, and I don't know too many people who are actually against Jesus. There are some, but not too many people who are against Jesus. He says, if you're not against me, you're with me. So that's like the positive angle on it. The other one's the negative angle on it. He actually says, from his own mouth, he says both. And again, that's what you and I love so much about Jesus. As soon as you think you have him pigeonholed in your in your set of uh, doctrinal paradigms, he pops out in you know some of the places. It's like whack a mole. You know, whenever you hit it down in one place, he pops up someplace else. So, um, I I think when I when I just hear that, my actual kind of my theological gut reaction is, wow, isn't that cool? Now, that's a new thought for me, because in years past, I would have thought, oh, that makes me uncomfortable, and what is that? Is that a tip of the hat to universalism, and I don't want to become Rob Bell. Sorry, I didn't mean to mention his name. I don't (laughs) want to become somebody who's a universalist or an inclusivist. I'm a conservative evangelical. I believe the whole Bible is true, you know, and that kind of freaks me out when I read things like this about Jesus. That's the past, Carl. Now, I'm still actually quite conservative. I'm still not a universalist. I think that people need to believe in it actual uh, Jesus, who is the Christ and the King, and need to say yes to him and give their lives to him and submit to him as king, and then they join his kingdom. That's the only way you have life. So I'm actually quite conservative, but I've just become okay with these kind of semi-bizarre, confusing statements that he makes. First of all, I feel like I have to be okay with it, because he's Jesus, and I just said that I have said yes to him and submitted myself to him, so I kind of have to be. He's the king. He gets to say and do whatever he wants. But then also, it just makes me realize I'm not him. I'm not God. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I actually don't know all truth. I I know Jesus, who is all the truth, but I mean, mean, how much do I really know him? Maybe I know 0.0001% of all there is to know about Jesus, so not very much. So he confuses me. Oh, that's... I, I can say, oh, that's interesting. There's other sheep in another fold. Huh, that's cool. And then I carry on. So, I mean, that's kind of the way I'm wired. It's just, I throw it up and go, oh, we can think about that for a while. That'd be fun. Let's do that now, by the way. But, I mean, do we have to figure it out and have it nailed down so we feel comfortable again? Well, I actually don't think so. That's what the Pharisees did. I don't want to be a Pharisee. So, there's my first reaction. So, the, the reason I think about, I thought about this in the first place is, uh, I know from hanging around you that because you've spent so much time in the Middle East, uh, at first totally frustrated in your conventional approach to trying to reach them, quote-unquote, or develop relationship with them, or lead them into a relationship with Jesus, you spent you know, a long time beating your head against the wall, not being able to make a breakthrough, and then you had a eureka moment where you realized, hey, if I just talk to them about Jesus— um, we can actually have a really good conversation. And from that little seed, that grew into uh, real love and appreciation for Muslims, and you have a lot of close friends who are Muslims. And I know that you have uh, taken you know, groups of pastors and others into the Muslim world to try to introduce them to your world and try to expose them to some of these relationships. And I know I've talked to some people that have gone with you before, Carl, and one of the wonderings they have sometimes is, well, but isn't there supposed to be a moment where a Muslim person says the thing that we think they're supposed to say in order to come to Christ so that they have salvation? Carl doesn't seem to think so. (laughs) There's kind of this wrestling match with, well, are there people in quote-unquote other sheepfolds that really, they may not say the right words, but they're truly followers of Jesus, and maybe even people who are followers of Jesus who haven't left the Muslim life. That That's a challenging thought in and of itself. So I know that you've had so much experience with all of this in, in what most people would say is a black-and-white world, 
and you live more in the gray with all of this. And so when you hear, well, Jesus saying, I have others I'm going to bring from another sheepfold, um, how does this particularly merge into what you have come to believe about engaging Muslims in relationship um, and bringing them to a place where they um, also share the, a similar love for Jesus as you have? I think one one way to start, maybe almost, is to say what I think we would agree uh, the word sheepfold does not mean. So, <clears throat> at least in my opinion, for sure, the sheepfold that Jesus is talking about being in or out of, or there are others that are in the sheepfold, for sure it cannot mean Judaism alone. It cannot just mean everybody has to become a Jew and has to become Jewish. We, we I mean... Gosh, there's too many scriptures to to quote uh, to, to let us agree with that point, right? It can't be. It can't mean that it's just Judaism that the sheepfold of Jesus is just all the Jews, because we know that's not true. Now, more controversially, I would say it also cannot mean it's Christianity. Uh, Jesus, I, I mean, it's good to remind ourselves Jesus wasn't a Christian. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, Rick, but he actually wasn't from Texas even. Oh my gosh. What? Well, yeah, but what about the dusty feet and the sandals and the? Uh, oh, I know, I know, I know. I, I know. We think he was a white guy from Texas and he speaks American, but he actually was a Palestinian Jewish guy, short, brown skin, hook nose, uh, and yeah, wore sandals and stuff. He was a Middle Eastern guy, so he, and he never talked about Christianity. He, he actually never mentioned the word Christian, and he never mentioned the word Christianity. Not one time. He didn't say anything bad about it. He just doesn't say anything about it. So he, there's no point where Jesus said, I have come that you may have Christianity, you know, which is named after my last name, Christ. <laughs> I, he, doesn't, he doesn't say that anywhere. So for sure the sheepfold, the sheepfold can't be, not, not only can it not be Baptist or Catholic or Orthodox or Assemblies of God or Presbyterian or Methodist, not only can it not be a specific denomination, but it cannot even be the, the religion of Christianity. That cannot be the sheepfold. So so if we if if we agree on that, I think actually if you think about that properly, it's actually really not that controversial to even say it because we know Jesus didn't talk about becoming Jewish and he didn't talk about becoming a Christian. So if we get that out of our head, then what is the sheepfold anyway? You know, whether you're a Muslim background, whether you're an atheist, whether you grew up in uh the northeast or northwest parts of America that are fairly agnostic or atheistic or just kind of irreligious in general, uh, whether you grew up in Texas and, and are Southern Baptist or whatever, uh, what is the thing that makes you in the sheepfold or not in the sheepfold? And I think it's just it's belief in Jesus. Jesus says in John 6, somebody asked him, what, what work must I do to, you know, to fulfill the law and do the works that God requires? And Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he sent. That that's it. The, the, the whole deal of God, the work of God that He requires, is that you believe in Jesus. So let's let's that's talk. Let's talk about that for a second, because um, you know, growing up in the church as you and I have, we we were kind of conditioned into thinking that the delineation between Christian and not Christian, you, you could say saved and not saved, is that you believe and say something that then invites Jesus to be. Lord of your life, and after you've believed and said this thing, you've crossed a, a line of delineation, and you are now saved. And uh, th that's the way that I always thought of all of this, as a, in kind of a default way. But if you go back to your the definition you just gave that came right out of Jesus' mouth, the, the work that I'm looking for is that you believe— what what how, how would you describe what believe means and maybe you could put it in the context of some of the people that you've known the muslim people that you've known who have come to love jesus and yet have not left really the muslim life in that context what what does believe actually mean what how, how do you know when somebody believes and somebody doesn't believe yeah i mean i think Belief is always connected to action. So let me tell you a short story. We were in Beirut uh, a few years back, and and we had we kind of ran this little um, young people's 
thing uh, every morning. It was kind of a drop-in center for young people. And, and actually, frankly, who ended up coming most were street kids. So they were Syrian, uh, Palestinian, uh, Arab gypsies, just kind of poor street kids. They'd pop in, and there was just like this, this little gang of about a dozen street boys uh, that would always come. And they were they would they would cause trouble and also be helpful. And they went in and out of those two things, like you know, twelve-year-old boys, you know, might do anywhere. And uh, anyway, one day, they brought a new friend, and he had, like, a skin disease. He was all blotchy, so he had white, I mean, you know, they're brown-skinned kids, obviously, but they had, this kid had white blotches all over his skin, all over his face. And everybody made fun of him. They literally brought him in, and they called him the version of, in Arabic, uh, basically, blotch boy. You know, that's what they were laughing and saying, oh, look at blotch boy, and they're making fun of him. And he didn't seem to care too much. He just kind of carried on. But anyway, we were reading through the book of Luke, with all these kids, one of our young people, um, and uh, she was a believer. She loves Jesus. She's from a Christian background, Lebanese Christian, and she was taking these boys to Luke, and she had brought one of her friends who was a university student who was a Muslim. So the two older girls are both about 21 years old, one a Christian who loved Jesus, Christian background, uh, that was her heritage, and then another Muslim who had just come for the first time. She didn't know anything about anything. And then there's these 12, 15 you know, boys who are all about 10 to 14 years old, and the new boy, Blotch Boy. And um, and the story that Joelle, her name was Joelle, happened to read that day from Luke was the story of healing, one of the stories, many stories, where Jesus healed somebody. And uh, and they finished the story and then asked for any input. And one of the young boys said, well, if that's true, why don't we pray for Blotch Boy and see if he, he can be healed? And then Joelle, the girl who's on our team, who's a Christian who loves Jesus, who's committed her life to this stuff, was kind of like, oh, well, uh, yeah. And then the other girl that had just come, the Muslim girl, who had never been to this place before, who didn't know anything that was going on, just a regular Muslim, she said, well, that is true. We just read from the Gospels that Jesus heals, healed people then. I wonder if it's true that he heals, would heal people now. And she said, not our, not our team member that was a believer, but this Muslim girl, she then said, we should pray for him. And then, you know, our girl, Joelle, our team member, was like, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, how much faith do you really have that somebody was, that was born with this birth defect would actually be healed? But she was like, well, you know, what can she say? She's kind of trapped in her own, her own Bible reading. So she said, sure. So she then said, why don't you pray for him? So Joelle, our team member, said of the new Muslim girl who said we should pray for him, she said, why don't you pray for this boy? So this brand new, this girl who had never set foot in our facility, didn't know me, didn't know my wife, Chris, didn't know any of the kids, didn't know what was going on, had just heard the story of Jesus healing somebody. She said, okay, and she was just like this, eyes open, she kind of looked around, she's like, okay, well, uh, Jesus, uh, I don't know how we're supposed to say this or what we're supposed to say or whatever, but uh, just do, you know, heal. This, this this kid's name is Zachariah, which is actually the name of Zacharias in Arabic, Zachariah. Uh, just, I guess, heal uh, Zachariah. And then all the boys giggled and they laughed and they started throwing things around, just acting crazy and stuff, and he was healed. And by the next day, by the next day, his spots were completely gone. He was completely brown-skinned. And nobody could believe it. And all of my Christian friends couldn't believe it, but it happened because this Muslim girl prayed for him. So stick that in your theological pipe and smoke it. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you do with that? It just so <laughs> reminds me of, the, of a story, again, that we think we know, but we don't slow down very much to understand how, how this story really will rock our world. And that's the story of his encounter with the Roman centurion, who is a yes. pagan military soldier who his basis for coming to Jesus to ask him to heal his servant was that he had an intrinsic understanding of authority, and somehow he recognized in Jesus that Jesus was a person of great spiritual authority. And he comes to Jesus and asks him to do the impossible, and Jesus says, oh, sure, I'll, I'll come toddle over to your house and you know, take care of that. And it's one of these encounters that I just love because I love encounters where people say or do things that shock and amaze Jesus. Yeah. I, I, I want to, at some point in my life, 
have a kind of a sense of certainty that I've just done or said something that shocked Jesus, because I would so love to be in that place. But the centurion says, oh, no, you don't need to come to my house. I get authority. You just say the word, and I know it's going to be true by the time I get home. And Jesus is like, oh, my gosh. And what he says is, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. So he's saying this. It reminds me so much of your story, Carl, because, well, has the centurion said the sinner's prayer? Has he come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, to use all these cliches that we use? But what he actually did was believe in Jesus. <laughs> At a profound yeah. and practical level, he believed in Jesus. And and that you, the story you just told was a girl who kind of simply, childlike, in a childlike way, believed in Jesus. So yeah. then, then we have to ask, is that enough? What does that mean? Is she in or out? Is the centurion in or out? And what does in or out mean? So I, I, some of this bridges into the second, the second part of what Jesus said here when um, he, he says, I have other sheep, too, that are not in this sheepfold. And then the next thing he says is, I must bring them also. And that's a very declarative statement. I must bring them also. And I think this is where some of the idea behind universalism comes. Universalism, by the way, is the, the belief that one way or another, everyone's going to be uh, rescued and saved by, by God, that because he's a loving God, that he can't possibly actually send someone to hell, I guess is the blunt way of saying it, and that universalists believe that somehow, some way, God's going to construct this so that all come to him in the end, and he's not going to lose any of them. And these statements that Jesus makes when he says, I must bring them also, kind of fuel some of that. And so, so Carl, I, I'm curious to know, what, what do you think are the differences between your perspective on all of this and, say, a universalist perspective on all this? Well, I think, I think for sure, it is Jesus' desire to bring everybody into a relationship with him. So we can say that with great assurance. So whether you're a universalist or you're a hardcore exclusivist that says, unless you say these five things, you know, you're going to hell. Either way, we can all agree that for sure God wants all the people to know him. We, we know that because he says that. God says that. Uh, Paul says that about God. Jesus says that about himself. I mean, that's pretty clear. And then whether or not we all will be saved or not is obviously where the debate lands. I don't think the scriptures point to that. I think God, maybe unfortunately, gave us free will and free choice. And so some some people are knuckleheads enough to, to reject Jesus and reject God and go their own way. And so, I, by the way, I don't think God sends anybody to hell. I, I do actually believe that people have the ability, uh, amazingly, that God really did give them free, free choice all the way from the beginning, which is why Adam and Eve made the huge mistake of eating of the one tree that God said don't eat of. I mean, they had the choice to do that, and they did that. And, you know, so I think people sometimes do choose to not to not follow Jesus, and then the consequences of that are what they are, which, you know, for sure it's bad. Whatever you think of hell, not being with God is not good, for sure. <laughs> And so I actually think that belief in Jesus, uh, by definition, belief has action. I mean, James wrote a whole book about that, but anywhere you look in the Scriptures, the people that believed in him are the ones who actually followed him. So the 12 disciples, the 25 others that were always with him, the 72, the 120, the 500, however many there were, honestly, many times the crowds, the crowds showed some kind of faith by going out to wherever he was and chasing him around and hounding him, and then he'd take care of them and show compassion and feed them and heal their sick and, and love them. Even the crowds had some kind of faith. I mean, we could call them fans, and maybe we're not, uh, you know, a big fan of the word fans, but I think Jesus' fans are great. I mean, it's better than not being a fan. And then he wants you to be a friend, and he wants you to be a disciple. But you believe, you show your belief uh, by what you do. So, I'd ask this question, did that girl, did that Muslim girl who didn't know any theology, had never prayed the sinner's prayer, didn't, had never read the Bible probably until hearing it that morning, did she show, did she obey Jesus's follow me command more than lots of people that we all know, let's not mention names, uh, don't even think about names, stop thinking about names, but that we know that go to our churches, that call themselves Christians, that go to church every Sunday, 
but you know their life doesn't look at all like Jesus, and they don't actually follow him. They don't actually believe in him, or even me. I mean, when I'm in that position, sometimes when I'm confronted with a choice right there, uh, there's a sick person, there's a crippled person in front of me. How full of faith do I feel to pray for healing for a crippled person in front of me? And the answer is embarrassingly not great. So, so I don't know that it's always necessarily about in or out or are you saved or not. So I think you want to go there. Our, our theological Western minds, which are very didactic and kind of bifurcated in or out, uh, are, those minds want to go to, yeah, but is he or she saved? And I think that's a fair question to maybe ask at some point. But I don't think it's the main question. It's for sure not the initial question. It's not the question that Jesus ever asked. He just said to people all the time, again and again and again, do you want to follow me? And then he'd invite them, follow me. And then either they did follow him, actually physically follow him. And the way we do that today is by doing the things that he did, saying the things that he said, thinking like he thought. And that's why, that's the whole impetus behind this little movement of simply Jesus. Like, the reason why we're focused on Jesus is not because it's a cool new trendy idea. I don't want to call myself a Christian. I want to call myself a follower of Jesus. Whatever. I actually don't care what we all call ourselves. The point is, what do we do based on belief, based on deep-seated belief in the person of Jesus Christ, who is amazing and calls us to do and say, act certain ways and, and certain things? And, and so I think that is it is important. I mean, it can sound like works, if you're not careful, it can become works and without faith and without grace attached to it. But I think the the way to think of it is the way James talks about it. If you want to show me your faith, then show me what you did, because that will be the outworking of your faith. So I think it, I actually think it's as simple as that. Yeah, what's interesting is, I, as I was listening to you talk, I was thinking about uh, w- one thing that I uh, did a good amount of research for, for Spiritual Grit, was I got fascinated by this idea that Jesus called himself the only rabbi we should ever call rabbi. And I started, I didn't, I realized, I don't know much about what a rabbi was back then, or what a rabbi was supposed to do, or what was the relationship between a rabbi and a student, and I didn't know really anything about that, and so I just immersed myself in this, and in the in Spiritual Grit, I, I found this so profound that uh, in Spiritual Grit, I suggest another name for the Holy Spirit could be the Invisible Rabbi, because he's, he, he's moving from outside of us to inside of us, and we can't see him, but he's definitely operating as a rabbi, inside of us. And one of the things I discovered about the relationship between a rabbi and a student is that belief was defined very differently by those who were yoked to a rabbi. If you if you were talking to this uh, to the yoked to rabbi in your life about your belief, you would almost certainly be talking about something you were doing. Not something, not an idea that you embraced, but a way that you were living, described your belief. There was no other category for belief except for the way you were living your life. So if you said that person uh, believes that Jesus heals, it wasn't a mental assent to the idea that Jesus could heal. It was a, a evidence of that person actually healing people in the name of Jesus, <laughs> because mm. that that exposed what they really believed. And I think that, I think you're right that it's, it's, it's easily twisted and tainted toward this idea that it's all about what I do, and, and, uh, and it's really not about faith, it's about doing, doing stuff. Uh, uh, and we know that, that, that that's not true, that there's a tension between faith and what we do, but the idea that belief is exposed and defined by what we do, I think, is undeniable. And if you don't yeah. do what you believe, then you don't really believe in the end. Right. So right. that's how you get this dynamic of people who barely know Jesus, but know enough about him to really believe in him, and they act out of it. Uh, yeah. it, it doesn't have to take decades <laughs> to believe in Jesus. Some people get it right away, like the centurion and like this this girl you talk about in your story. The other thing that I... Well, could, uh, go ahead. Well, could that be a similar kind of thing, to, you know, the, the parable that Jesus talked about with uh, the workers in the, in the field that in the vineyard that came, you know, came in later and got the same wage at the end of the day? 
I mean, all of us that have been working in this field, especially for those like you and I that in some way or another have kind of made a living off of of kind of being professional Christians, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, you know, it is tempting for us to look at the brand new person or the Muslim girl who prays for healing and the guy gets healed and say, well, yeah, but, you know, I mean, yeah, of course God can do anything he wants. And, and that, frankly, would be still what I would say, is that isn't that amazing how God used that girl? And by the way, just so you know the end of the story, that girl did, did she did end up giving her life to following Jesus, but she, at that time, clearly did not know what she was doing. And so would I say that she was saved past tense at that time? No, I think she wasn't, but she did the works of the kingdom. By the way, the disciples, I'm not sure they were, you know, at what point did the disciples get saved? It was hard, it's hard to know when the 12 actually were in the kingdom. It may not, been, may not have been until Pentecost, and yet they did works of the kingdom pre pre-Holy Spirit, or uh, pre-being saved, or pre-understanding. The last thing they said to Jesus as Jesus disappeared was, they looked up to him and said uh, these horrible words. They said, so is now the time that you make Israel a great nation again and give it back to us? I mean, I can miss the whole... And Jesus had to be, like, grasping his yarmulke and saying, oh, he's there. I can't believe it. What? Why do I spend three years with these knuckleheads? They still have they, they missed the whole point, you know. Yeah, and we get and we get evidence of that actually on the the, the well known story of the road to Emmaus when two of his close yes. uh, followers are describing Jesus to himself because they don't realize he's Jesus, and it was so yes. so playful what Jesus did in this story where he introduces himself to them, but they don't realize who they're talking to. And so he asks them, oh, well, no, tell me, uh, what, what's, what has happened in the last few days? And in their description of Jesus, they never call him Messiah. They never call him Lord. They call him uh, a, a great rabbi, a prophet. They still don't get or don't embrace who he really is, even in that yeah. moment. And I think that's why Jesus asked them to tell him back who, who they thought he was without knowing who he was. So it's so true that exactly. I, I love that idea that we, we think just sort of in a default way, well, all the disciples became Christians the day they said they would follow Jesus. Hmm. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of evidence that they really didn't get him for quite some time. So, And, and by the way, just to be clear, they never did become Christians. <laughs> there, was no, there was no thing called that, and that's not what it was about. The one time the Christians, the one time the word Christians clearly used in the whole New Testament is in, is in Acts, and it says they were called they were called Christians by somebody. So in a kind of a them Christians at Antioch. In a kind Antioch. of a pejorative way, actually, they were that, that was Most kind likely. of a. Yeah, it was probably yeah. likely a, a negative way of referring to them. So, yes, so exactly. I think it's uh, the, the, this is interesting that Jesus, we have to also say that one of the, these things that is upending about Jesus is that he was all the time differentiating as well. He, was, he told stories about the sheep and the goats, and boy, if you want the hair to stand up on your forearms, read what he says about sheep and goats, and what their ultimate destination is. It's like, what? I thought yeah. I thought you wanted everyone, Jesus. And he also differentiates between things like freedom and the law. And he says he fulfills the law. We're actually going to do a podcast on what the heck does it mean that Jesus fulfills the law. We'll do one, a whole episode on that later. But he does differentiate things. He does say, uh, yep, uh, you're in, nope, you're out, in, in kind of shorthand way. And yet... <laughs> We have delineated in ways that don't really reflect the way that he describes what this is like. So we, right. we have kind of tried to boil this down into kind of recipe-like precision so that uh, we know who's in and we know who's out. And that's what always struck me, uh, Carl, about your work in the Middle East with people that, very frankly, if, if they were to, quote-unquote, become Christians and leave behind their Muslim life— they would leave behind their family, their culture, everyone they'd ever known, and might also be physically in danger. Um, so it, is that what we're calling them to do, uh, or is it something else, I think? And again, and again, you know, Jesus gets us there, too, because uh, somebody hearing you say what you just said would say, yes, that is what the Gospel calls. Jesus clearly says, leave your family and don't look back on the plow and don't bury your dead father and Yes, Jesus does call us to persecution. Jesus promises persecution. So there is that, and it's also true that James 
uh, in Acts chapter 15, I think it is, at the great kind of what called the first great council of the churches. James stands up at the end of this great deliberation about the Holy Spirit and Gentiles and Jews and all this confusion stuff that's happening in real time in a very real tangible way. His his pronouncement is, and let us not make it difficult on the Gentiles to come in. And so again and again and again and again, as soon as you see hard guy, tough guy Jesus, who's you know making a clear delineation, the sinning goes off to hell. At the very next uh, page, you see the nice guy Jesus uh, welcoming everybody and saying to the religious leaders, the religious right of his day with the Pharisees, and you know he'd be saying to the, the conservative evangelical crowd that a lot of us come from and are in and whatever, he'd be saying to us uh, something like he said to the the Pharisees, very potentially. So. I just love that. I don't think we should be threatened by that. We should love the fact that Jesus is confusing. Otherwise, if he's not confusing, then maybe I'm Jesus. I mean, maybe, <laughs> you know, maybe I'm God. I've, I've figured it all out. I've figured it out. I, I got Jesus nailed, and I got I got figured out that's maybe a bad metaphor. But I've got to figure it out. But that's ridiculous, since I know I'm not God, and I don't have it figured out. Why is it not okay for me to let Jesus be a little bit, or a lot confusing, and that he seemingly, in a sense, almost contradicts himself in how he says everybody's welcome and everybody's coming in to uh, the gates very narrow, and very few are going to find it. And he, I would just say this, he says both. Isn't that awesome? He says both. I love that. So the, let's let's do a couple of things here as we, as we roll to our close here. The central question I'm always asking whenever we get in into the tension of Jesus relative to, is he this or is he that? Why did he say this and then say that? The central question there to always ask is, um, why? Why is he that way? Why did he just say that? Why did he just do that? Because that leads us to his heart. So what do you, thinking about this dynamic that you just described, Carl, well, what do we know about Jesus' heart just based on the emphasis that he places on this dichotomy uh, and and what he's saying about sheep and shepherds and sheepfolds in this in this context. What do we know about Jesus' heart when we sink into this? Well, but that's a great question. Two things immediately pop to my mind. One is uh, like these confusing sayings of Jesus that seem to say both you know show both sides of the coin. You could also throw the parables into that too. The parables very seldom actually help people understand. He tells a parable, which I just call a confusing story without a point. So he tells a parable, everybody's confused, and then he walks away. Or he tells a parable, everybody's confused, and then he tells another parable, which they still don't understand, and then he says, and I'm not going to explain it to you, and then he walks away. But for sure, for some reason, he says things on purpose, strategically, to confuse people or to leave them wondering. And I think this is actually just my thought. I haven't really seen this anywhere else, so I'm probably wrong. But my thought is Jesus is much more willing to confuse us and leave us confused than we think because he actually wants us to be with him. He is less concerned about me understanding the theology behind the parable than he is me wanting to be with Jesus. And actually, some of the people I love hanging around the most aren't the ones who have all the answers. I mean, who wants to hang out with a know-it-all? I actually, I don't. I mean, I don't like people that are like that. I don't like it when I come across that way, by the way, either. I'm doing that now. I'm so sorry. But I don't want to be with a know-it-all. I don't want to be a know-it-all. I want to be with people who are always confused and asking questions and saying, yeah, but, and, and then and then be not just staying confused, but just running back to Jesus and saying, you know, all I can figure out is there's something about Jesus. There's something special about Jesus that gives me hope and life and freedom and there's grace and there's truth and there's just all this. And he's in a, I mean, he just he confuses the bejeebies out of me. But man, do I love that guy! And I just want to. And so I think the heart of Jesus that I see in his confusing parables or confusing sayings is that he is more interested in us being with him, actually physically, literally being with him, than he is us understanding the truth about this or that. So I think that's a huge deal, and if you can allow me, Rick, a last little point that I think is really interesting that sure I thing. haven't thought of. T- tell me if you thought of this after I say it, but I, I haven't found many people that have thought about, about Jesus being a shepherd, a good shepherd. By the way, other than King, 
I think shepherd is the most used, and maybe by Jesus himself, the most used um, kind of you know, description of Jesus is that he is the shepherd, the good shepherd. Mm-hmm. When we think of a shepherd physically, think of, I mean, first of all, if, if you're an American listening to this podcast, you probably haven't met many shepherds that are actually out with their sheep because, you know, we just don't do that anymore. But usually when we think of a shepherd and a sheep from a movie that we've seen or something that we've seen, we see a guy with a rod or staff kind of behind the sheep and maybe a couple of sheep dogs. And at these days, out here in Colorado, the few sheep, you know, sheep and shepherd uh, ranches that are around, you'll see them on four wheel, you know, four wheelers, little, little ATVs, and they're herding the sheep. You know, they're trying to get the sheep to go somewhere. So the shepherd behind, sheep dogs on the side, nipping at the heels of the sheep, and maybe even some four wheelers, some ATVs, you know, kind of running around behind the sheep, and they're driving the sheep a certain direction. But Till today, if you're in the Middle East, we just got back from Lebanon, by the way. We were just in Beirut, and we took our daughter. We were up in the hills. We were driving around, and we stopped, and we watched the shepherd and the sheep physically. This is like three weeks ago. And a shepherd is never behind the sheep. He is always in front of the sheep Mm. in the Middle East. He is never driving the sheep. He is always leading the sheep. You will never see a shepherd in the Middle East with a sheepdog nipping at the heels of the sheep, making the sheep go somewhere they don't want to go. You will only see a shepherd who lives with the sheep, who sleeps with the sheep, who hangs out all his life with the sheep. They literally know his voice. They literally smell his smell, and he theirs. And they are one, and he walks in front of them, and they, by their own will, follow him. Isn't that that's awesome. That's powerful, and it's so true. And and it, what's ironic is that you just described the last part of of what Jesus said at the end of this curious little mud puddle statement. He said, "The sheep that he's bringing with him listen to his voice, and there'll be one yeah. flock with one shepherd." And what you just described is very, very intimate. It's the kind of knowing that I, I had a friend of mine once say. Do you know Jesus so well that if he walked into the room, you would know his smell? And I thought, that is such a great image for me. Have we spent so much time with him that in the most unexpected place, if, if if a physical Jesus walked into the room, we think we would know his smell? That that we've we've sunk into his life so much, and that's what you're describing with the sheep. That it's almost uh, it, it it can almost look like following by mind control, because it's just your little nuances, your little ticks, your little little grunts that that direct and guide where you're going and where you want them to go. My wife is this is a terrible example, but we have a, a Bajan Frise who looks like a tiny little overweight sheep, and. This, this, my wife often wonders, can this dog understand language? And I said, well, she studies us, and because I play the role of pack leader to our little Bajan Frise, she has a different relationship with me. And I can, I can uh, nudge or direct my eyes somewhere or, or just grunt or say one word, and she knows immediately what I mean. And so my wife is like, does she understand that? And I'm saying... Uh, she doesn't understand human language, but she does understand my nuances, and she's paying yeah. attention to my nuances, and she will go and do what I intend for her to do because of that. It's the same kind of relationship. It's a mutual pain, ridiculous attention relationship, and uh, I, I think that uh, you know that that is a good way to kind of uh, uh, kind of expand when Jesus says they will listen to my voice. This is what he's talking about. He's saying they they not only know that I'm a shepherd, they know I'm their shepherd. And uh-huh. and they listen to, listen to me means that they're following behind me. Uh and they do it naturally because they can't they kind of can't help themselves anymore. And that's what I guess that's how I describe what a disciple's life is. You kind of can't help yourself anymore. You you're following Jesus because you you really can't imagine not following Jesus. Even if you screw up and don't do everything right, you just find yourself following his voice, listening to his voice, because you kind of can't help yourself anymore. You're just kind of infected with him. So that's where we want to get to, I think. And it's possible. This kind of life is possible with messy, broken people like us. This this kind of everyday life is possible. 
You know, I, Carl, I wanted to wrap up uh, this by, I want to loop back to your book, 42 Seconds. Um, so in that book, your aim is really to maximize our impact on others. And and as we talk about Jesus and, and what he's really inferring by the sheep and the shepherd and the sheepfold, we're really seeing a picture of a, of a Jesus who has this profound, immersive impact on others. Even in the midst of his conf- confusing statements, he has this attractional, magnetic impact on others. So in 42 seconds, you're, you're basically saying, well, wh- what if we were to sort of maximize our interactions as well, the, the way Jesus did? And I, I thought it'd be good to close off this with just asking you, what, what, what have you learned from Jesus that sticks out the most to you as far as engaging others in the spirit of Jesus? Mm, wow, big uh, question. Put me on the spot. Um, I don't know if it's what I've learned most, but maybe the first thing that comes to mind is for me to have, like Jesus, have a healthy suspicion of my own religious community and have a completely open heart to people outside of my community, which you know, which fits in with our, my our you know our sheepfold, this yeah. sheepfold and the other sheepfold conversation. Which we, I'm not sure we ever really answered that question, but we we, we had a nice dance around the, the edges <laughs> of it anyway. You know, um, you know. So I, I feel like that's how Jesus was. He was, he seemed to be kind of quite skeptical of his own religious elite. You know, and he was not skeptical of other people's religion, religious leaders. You don't see him calling out the Samaritan leaders and calling them a brood of vipers. He didn't. He didn't call out all the pagan leaders and the tribal leaders of other groups around him and and called them whitewashed tombs. He called his own people that. And so I think there is, and that's a tough game to play because you can be judgmental and critical and just always carry that attitude around about, you know, our own tribe, which is, you know, Christian of some brand. And so we have to be careful because we're not Jesus, and so we can't go around calling people names and, and justify it and say that's what Jesus did. But but I think there's like a healthy skepticism of mostly of myself, what I think I know to be true, and my most inner circle. And then there's an openness to people who don't think like me that Jesus had. So I think that's something that comes to mind that I learned about Jesus the most. Yeah, and, and I, it just reminds me that you mentioned this before, that Jesus really sort of um, placed himself in it superseding the kind of religious rules and traditions and nitpicking that surrounded him and were part of the daily experience of the people that he was with. He, he, he said, and again, we're gonna, I think we're going to do a whole episode on this, that he came to fulfill the law, not abolish the law, but what does that mean? Right. Uh, but these rules and structures and delineations that surrounded him, he was constantly upending these things, and trying yeah. to say, you guys don't get it, I embody these yeah. things. If I say it, it goes, because I'm, I'm in the, the embodiment of truth. I'm the embodiment of uh, salvation. I'm the embodiment of Messiah. I'm the embodiment of life. It's not like I'm giving you life. Uh, you're actually getting life rubbed off on you when, you when you're around me, because I am life. And I think that's what's so powerful about... I think that where we, you and I, Carl, have such a, a, a kindred connection is that the more you hang out with Jesus in a close, intimate way, the more you end up smelling like him. And <laughs> to, to, to use the metaphor, you, you just end up getting his essence on you. And that's in the end our aim. And when others sense the essence of Jesus, we know from Scripture that they're either going to hate that or absolutely love it. So in the end, that's what we hope happens in our encounters. So I encourage you, gang, to check out 42 Seconds. It's a, it's a great devotional book. Each of the chapters are short and focused on one thing, so it's a great book to use as a devotional. And I do want to invite you to, to come hang out at the Simply Jesus Gathering this summer. It's a relaxed, conversational party. A lot of laughter, um, a lot of surprises. It's a great time together. So we'll put a link to on our site for that. And hey, Carl, thank you so much for uh, Thanks, hanging out. And um, I hope you find your way out of the wilderness before too much, too longer. <laughs> and we'll Me talk. Too. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Rick. All right, that was Carl. So again, it's paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. Uh, 
Yeah, take a look at our podcast page there and really do check out the, the things that we talked about today. And by the way, if you want to make sure that you don't miss a single episode of, of this podcast, subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And that way you'll, you'll never miss out. So, hey, gang, we'll talk to you again next week.